Look at this photograph. Every time I do, it makes me laugh. Those words are two things. First, the lyrics to a 2005 Billboard Top 10 single from the band Nickelback. Any of you remember that song? And it's also what Ellen, my spouse, said to her friend who visited her this week. The photograph they were laughing at was a picture of me in sixth grade. And they had every right to be laughing. I was short and wide, oversized glasses, hair parted straight down the middle. Some things I don't have a problem with anymore, at least. Whenever that yearbook comes out, I shudder as I remember just how wildly nerdy and socially out of touch I was. Was. But after that quick shudder, I smile. Because I begin to stroll down memory lane and I see the pictures of my classmates. Of Nick, Jonas, Maisha, Francis, Don, Joseph, and Nikki. I remember their idiosyncrasies. I remember how good they were at basketball or dodgeball, how smart they seemed in class. But most of all, what I remember is how those stories were intertwined with mine. I smile as I remember how Tom cheered me up after class one day. I smile as I remember how Matt kept picking me for his basketball team in gym class, even though I rarely scored a basket. I remember the friends that prayed for me. I look at that yearbook and I remember my great cloud of witnesses, the stories of those souls intertwined with mine, some of whom witnessed to Christ, many of whom witnessed to the reality that junior high is just hard. Now that yearbook or photo album image is one way to read today's text, this metaphor of the family photo album of faith. All the great aunts and the weird uncles and the amazing grandmothers and the grandfathers who surround us even today with their influence, who live in our hearts and propel us forward. We run this race of faith every day and we see them standing on the risers on the side cheering us on. That image is wonderful. And for all the saints of the glory past, we say thanks be to God. But digging into this text, I couldn't help but think that that image might in some ways cheapen or even distort the intention of the author of Hebrews. And what clued me into this was the writer's use of the word pioneer. When I first read the passage, I was fascinated by the word pioneer because it's really beautiful, romantic concept in American minds, right? The pioneers of manifest destiny in the West, riding the Oregon Trail, coming up on a beautiful scenery as they evade dysenteria or their wagon being flooded down the Colorado River or their oxen being killed or at least if you're playing the 1980s Oregon Trail computer game, you know what I'm talking about. But the pioneer is this beautiful image, regardless, in American minds. So when I read Hebrews' suggestion to look to Jesus as the pioneer of our faith, it felt bold and inspirational and revolutionary and definitely worth a sermon. 
But it turns out, like so many things in the Bible, that the Greek is more nuanced. Pioneer, archaegon, comes from two roots. Arche, which means first, and ago, which means leader. Jesus is our first leader. As I mold that over in my mind, I thought about who would our culture call our pioneers, our first leaders, those people who open the door for others. Are they powerful and idyllic, kind of like a half-dressed Vladimir Putin riding on a horse? Or are they wearing a pilgrim's hat and swimming into Plymouth Rock? Or is it something else entirely? turns out when you think about it that pioneering leaders, the ones that really break the ground in terms of breaking down a social norm or paving the way for a change movement, they're usually not highly esteemed, but rather despised, rejected, scorned by humankind. There's really nothing romantic about being a pioneer. Quite the opposite. Pioneers are often the model of suffering. But why is that? Malcolm Gladwell has just put out a new podcast series called Revisionist History. You've heard of this guy. He wrote The Tipping Point, an outlier, and a number of New York Times bestsellers. But this podcast is now number one on iTunes. And he examines in his first episode what he says on his his website is the strange phenomena of the token leader, the outsider whose success serves not to alleviate discrimination, but to perpetuate it. For example, if a country elects a female president, does that mean the door is now open for all women to follow? Or does that simply give the status quo the justification to close the door again? So you don't have to listen to the whole thing. By the way, it's usually the closed door. And there's tons of examples of this phenomena. Just one is Julia, Julia Gillard, who was the Prime Minister of Australia for three tumultuous years. Now, at the beginning of it, everyone was very excited by Australia's election of their first female Prime Minister. But soon enough came the insults. Ditch the witch. Julia Liar. Bob Brown's the thing that rhymes with witch. One radio host said, I'm putting, putting Julia Gillard into a chafe bag and hoisting her into the Tasman Sea. In reference to her coat, one said, it looks like a cheap motel bread, bedspread. And someone else said, she needs a new stylist. How can this be? How can a country go from being so progressive to elect their first female leader to hurling the worst insults you could think of at her. Gladwell shares other examples from Elizabeth Thompson, the famous artist from England at the end of the 19th century, to Jackie Robinson. And he shares these examples in an attempt to explain the phenomena of moral self-licensing. Moral self-licensing is a new idea in psychology circles. 
but it's been proven by a whole variety of studies. And it shows that when people do an action that makes themselves feel good about their moral self, it gives themselves license to do a less moral action in the near future. It's counterintuitive, right? You tend to think if someone does something good, they're going to continue that streak. But unfortunately, what they find is a large proportion of the population does a moral action or even speaks about its intentions or thinks about themselves as good people and then is far more likely to commit a less moral act in the future. We know this to be true of ourselves, at least. If you have the salad for lunch, are you more likely to have another salad for dinner? You know who's getting the brownie tonight. But, hey, I'm a moral self. I did the right thing. I do right things, right? Dozens of these studies have replicated this phenomenon both on the macro scale, if you buy a product that declares itself to be green or environmental friendly, you're far more likely to do a variety of less environmentally friendly things in the very near future. That's the micro scale, but on the macro scale, the elections are probably the most prominent example. Without exception, every time a pioneering leader manages to break through some social norm, it gives that society this moral self-license to make comments that would have been deemed entirely inappropriate before that election. So if in your own life you hear someone say, I'm not a racist, but, or I'm not a sexist, but, look out. Because that dreadful conjunction means you're about to witness some high-profile moral self-licensing. Have I successfully de-romanticized your notions of the pioneer yet? But wait, there's more. If you think about pioneers, the first leaders of faith listed in Hebrews 11, it gets worse. It lists this whole slew of saints who have come this far by faith, by faith, by faith. But these are not deeds that would get you into your family photo album from vacation. This is gruesome stuff. They're more like a moment early in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Pastor Scott Hosey summarizes that moment in this way. He says, Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, and most of his men have somehow survived the utter carnage of the D-Day invasion at Omaha Beach. And they're now on a high bluff overlooking a scene of utter destruction. One of Miller's men says, that's quite a view. And Miller replies, yes it is. Quite a view. And then you as the audience in the film get to see the scene. It's a red stained ocean. The water washing up and around deadless, countless bodies of fallen soldiers and many dead fish. They litter the beach as far as the eye of Tom Hanks and his friends can see. It's this horrific tableau of the sacrifice made by so many to end Hitler's reign. But standing on that high bluff is just the start 
of Hebrews 12. And looking back in those last verses of Hebrews 11, it's quite a view. The landscape of these verses in the Bible, by the way, is littered with the martyrs who gave their all for God. Having spent much of Hebrews 11 signaling out the heroes of faith, the author finally says there's just too many more to mention in detail. And that's not even to try to mention the countless nameless figures who were tortured, murdered, massacred, run through with spears, split in two by swords, sawn in half, who endured every human hardship imaginable on account of their faithfulness to God. It's quite a view. I don't know about you, but that's not the great cloud of witnesses that I heard growing up in church. This isn't really a bunch of pictures in the photo album everyone's favorite day at their lodge in the woods. It's more like a picture of that ancestor who almost died from disease on the boat to Ellis Island. Or an image of the lashing whips of the cotton fields. Or a picture of the women and men who were beaten at Selma so that their descendants would live in a more faithful world. Hebrews 11 paints a pioneer of sacrifice. It says that that the archagon, the first leader of that sacrifice, is Christ. The exemplar. The one whose sacrifice and whose death we know all too well. Pioneer of faith looks less like a covered wagon and more like Emily Davidson, a suffragette. I know how many of you have seen the movie Suffragette. It came out last year featuring Meryl Streep. Emily was part of the movement in England pushing that women might have the right to vote. And about the time she comes in the scene, about 1910, the movement was becoming militant. Mailboxes were torn down. Small bombs destroyed offices of public officials. Bricks were thrown through windows. Acts of arson committed. And as the police started colluding with the press to stop covering these acts of protest, the movement decided that they needed to get the king's attention. So Emily and one other suffragette attended a horse race in 1913. The king's horse was to race that day. Emily targeted that horse as it came around the bend. As the horse and jockey approached, she ducked underneath the running rail into the path of the king's horse, trampling and killing Emily Davison. 6,000 women came out, and thousands lined the streets as the casket processed through town arguably pushing the suffragette movement into its successful conclusion. It's quite a view up here. And now with our new lens of what it means to be a pioneer, let's listen again to the end of our passage. The good news is it's brought to us by the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. There is good news, folks. When it comes to movements, once someone's opened the door, even in the face of those who practice moral self-licensing, there is a way forward. When ceilings are cracked open, they still have shards. But eventually, the movement of the people of God pushes through. Brian Whitfield, another pastor, talks about the other parts of that word, pioneer, archegos. It can also mean author, or the beginner, or the instigator, the impetus, the trailblazer who goes before us and suffers first. Here, the writer has in mind the first namesake of Jesus, Joshua, son of Nun, who scouted out the land of promise, way, way back in the Old Testament. Just so, this new Jesus, our perfecter of faith, has been our scout, blazing a trail through all of human existence, tested in every way like us, yet finding joy at the end of the suffering of the cross. The Archegos is also the team captain. In the Greek games, the team captain would run the race and then wait at the finish line to encourage his teammates as they followed in his steps. My friends, we are not walking the Oregon Trail. We don't have oxen leading us. We probably won't die of dysentery this week. But we are running a race. If the pictures that surround us are fluffy, if we think of the cloud of witnesses like our Facebook profiles, highly stylized and tinted with the right profile picture that make the world know that we're looking good, we're missing the faith. But we have an example. We have a perfecter, and his name is Jesus, the pioneer the one who endured all things and suffered on the cross that you and I, while we might suffer from some of the shards, have a chance to break through. This is good news for you and for me. And so the question I lay before you is, where is God asking you to be a pioneer? Are you shunning that direction because of the fear of pain? or social isolation. Reflect on that calling of God this morning as we approach a singing of the Lord's Prayer. As the choir sings it through the first time, listen to what God is calling you to do. And as you join your hearts in song, ask God to invite you to be a pioneer of the faith.